If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2 verses 12 through 26. You'll find this on page 226 in the Black Key Bible. Last week, uh, we heard in the first part of chapter 2, Hannah's prayer of praise to the Lord. In it, she alluded to the arrogant and the wicked and the adversaries of the Lord. And here in the passage before us, we find these folks, but not among the Canaanites and not among the Philistines, but among the priests of the Lord of Israel. There's wickedness in the passage before us of monumental proportions, and it's in the house of God. And we're going to see God's response to wickedness in his own house. We live in an age when sin is taken lightly, and we think God takes sin lightly, and God does not take sin lightly. What does God do in the face of sin, particularly when the leaders of God's people are wicked? What does he do? This passage shows us something of what he does. And let me invite you to give your attention to it. First Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 through 26. This is the word of God. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. 
And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Amen. This is God's holy word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray because you oppose the proud but are gracious to the humble that you would humble us before your word and its truth and its promise. We ask even that it would enlighten the eyes of our minds that we would even have joy by your word. But sober us by it too, we pray. And so be our teacher. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. The worship center in Shiloh is rocked by scandal. This is the kind of passage that could have been written in the church of today. In the world of today. And uh, it's fascinating that it was here in Shiloh where Hannah dropped off her three- or four-year-old son to be trained for the ministry by Eli, the father of these two wicked priests. She must have been a woman of great trust in the Lord to do such a thing, which she did as she had promised because God had given her Samuel. And so here's this little guy being raised in this filthy place. What is God's answer to the filth of the leadership of his people in that day? Let me highlight three things from our passage. In the first place, highlight God's work. And you're going to see that across the passage from 12 to 26. And then highlight God's kindness, verses 19 through 21. And then God's judgment, Verses 22 to 26. In the first place, I want you to see the quiet manner of God's work in verses 21 or 12 through 26. Uh, first, consider the darkness and then consider the quiet manner of God's work. Consider the darkness and then God's response. The darkness is what? The, the sons of Eli are evil men. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great. In the sight of the Lord. What were some of these sins? Verse 12 tells you of their personal ignorance. The evil of their personal ignorance. It says they did not know the Lord. That doesn't mean that they didn't know about the Lord. 
It doesn't mean that Eli hadn't taught them. It doesn't mean that they hadn't been uh, catechized or instructed in the word of God and the truth of God. But it does mean that they didn't buy it. They cared nothing for God. They lived for themselves, as is clear in the passage. And these are the priests of God ministering on God's behalf to the people of God on their behalf. And there was uh, not only this kind of personal depravity, but there was liturgical perversity. People here uh, have come. They've offered their sacrifices of atonement, which are, which are burned up. The whole thing is given over to God as a substitute for what they ought to have been but haven't been. There's a substitute in death. There's offerings for sacrifices for sin. And then there's this peace offering, and this is the offering referred to here. You know that because people are going to eat portions of it, including the people that offered it. What's going to happen is the fat portions are supposed to be offered on the altar to God and burned away. The priest is supposed to get the breast and the right thigh. Now this is according to Leviticus chapter 7. It's well taught in the scripture. This is how the priests would get their food. This is how they would eat. It was uh, the way in which they would be supported in their ministry. But here in Shiloh, things were different. And of course, then the, the people that offered it would, would take it back to their table and, and eat with their family and their friends. And it was a celebratory sacrifice at this point, rejoicing that God had made peace between himself and them. Delighting in that reconciliation. But here, the priests, Phineas and Hophni, would come around with the infamous three-pronged fork. And into the pot, they would plunge it. And whatever came up, they took for themselves. They're taking more than they're supposed to. Not necessarily the pieces that they're supposed to. And this is much more than just bad manners. On their part, God had specifically commanded what it was they could have. So there was this liturgical perversity, but there was a liturgical violence. Verse 15, even before the fat was burned, they took the meat by force. See, what they did is they sent around their priestly mafia, their assistants, to go and say to people, now look, the priest, he doesn't want the boiled meat. He doesn't want the portions that uh, are allotted. To, he wants raw meat. He, he wants filet mignon, right? He wants the porterhouse. He wants the New York strip. And he doesn't want you to touch it. He wants to cook it for himself. The, the best pieces, you might say. And if the worshiper objected, hey, look, we haven't even burned the fat yet. In other words... Let me at least cut off the portion that's supposed to be offered to God. We'll honor him in that. And then, okay, you can have my pieces too. Take, take whatever it is you want. But just let's honor the Lord at least. And they said, no, no, give it to us now raw or we will take it by force. You can imagine here at Redeemer. Folks, we've come to that point in our service where it's time to take up the collection. Deacons, I want you to shut and lock the doors. Uh, Please, folks, take out your wallets. What's that, ma'am? You left your purse in the car? Oh, that's okay. That that necklace and uh, that that, that wedding ring? That'll be just fine. You be sure that makes it into the offering plate. I I know those belong to you, but, well, the priest, he's got... 
It's got high designs. And so here it is. Um, don't worry, they say. This, this is for God's humble servants. And, uh, and what are they doing? They are treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. And so they're treating the Lord with contempt. And there's more than that that's rotten in Shiloh. There's more. There's a moral scandal, right? You hear it at verse 22 and following. Eli's very old. He keeps hearing that uh, his sons, uh, what they're doing to all Israel, what are they doing? They're laying with the women who are serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These women were liturgical helpers of some kind. Exodus chapter 38 verse 8 tells us, and it mentions that Moses made, when Moses was constructing the tabernacle, he made a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance at the tent of meeting. Now, we don't know much about what they were doing, but in some way, shape, and form, they were helping at the entrance to the tent. They, of course, uh, like the regular priests themselves, didn't go into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. There were different places allowable for different kinds of people. But they're there, they're serving, they're helping, they're serving and helping for the sake of the Lord. And what are Hophni and Phinehas doing? Men who are married and have wives of their own. These are grown men. They are sleeping with these female temple servants. And Eli's Sons here then have adopted the religion of the Canaanites around them, the religion of the pagans around them, where it was part of the practice of temple worship in those false religions that one of the things you did is you slept with the temple prostitutes. You know, you're going to commune with the God by communing with his servants in his temple. Perhaps that was their thinking, or maybe they were just lust-filled and unrestrained men with no theological category at all. But they're as wicked as the Canaanites. They knew better. They knew they shouldn't do it. Everybody else knew that they had done it. It had become a public and scandalous sin. It had fallen on the ears of Eli. Everybody's talking about these sons. And so there's this terrible, moral evil, uh, liturgical evil, spiritual evil, personal evil, and darkness in Israel at the very heart of the worship of God, among the leadership. Is there no hope then? There's hope. What? Samuel. Did did you notice how the passage is punctuated by these little remarks about that little boy named Samuel. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So Hophni and Phinehas are bad men. But don't forget, the passage says, don't forget about Samuel. And why is that important? One of the things that's going on here is that God is growing up new godly leadership in the midst of the current wicked leadership. 
He is, that is, God is quietly at work. Even if you don't see it or recognize it for what it is. Matthew Henry says the God of Israel, the Savior, is sometimes the God that hides himself, but never a God that is absent. Sometimes in the dark, but never at a distance. He's quietly doing his work. You can misunderstand that work, but he's at work. There's a wonderful story about Samuel and Susanna Wesley. These are the parents of John and Charles Wesley and a boatload of other kids. They had something like 19 kids. Their first son, they named Sammy, presumably after their fa- the father, Samuel. Sammy, uh, they aspired for him that he should grow up and become a clergyman, that he would become an Anglican minister uh, as, as they were Anglicans. But to their dismay, Sammy didn't speak for the first four years of his life. He never said a word. And they concluded that he was a deaf mute. Their hopes for him for the ministry seemed to be dashed. One day he went missing. And his mother, Susanna, looking all over him, calling out for him as a mother would do. Even if she thinks her son can't hear, of course she's yelling for him. She's out in the garden yelling for him. She comes into the house. She's looking everywhere and uh, in anguish calling out to him. And then finally she hears this little voice say, here I am, mama. And there he was. He was under a table. He was holding his favorite cat. And from that moment forward, he spoke like a normal child. You can make a wrong assumption about quietness. Just because God's work isn't obvious, it isn't blatant, don't think it's not there. Don't think he's not doing something. Even in the dark moments in Israel's experience, he's preparing for the next moments. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't hear it, even if you don't recognize it. Do you see it? Verse 18, there's a boy wearing a linen ephod. That's the special garb of the priesthood evidently given to him by Eli. There's this little boy easily overlooked serving the Lord at that same sanctuary. There's a little boy in a dark place growing up faithful to the Lord. We need that today. We need to hear that today. You may wonder in a dark world and sometimes a very dark church, can anything good happen? Is God paying attention? Is he doing anything? And the answer is yes. One of the things he's doing is he is cultivating the next generation. Shall we not do likewise? Was evil among the leadership going to thwart God's purposes in redemption? No, it was not going to thwart his purposes. He's, he, that is God, is biding his time until he sweeps them away. He's raising up a little boy to walk faithfully with him. That's the quiet manner of God's work. Now the second thing I want you to see that God is doing in the face of the evil in the leadership of the people of God was that he is continuing his blessing because of his kindness. 
verses 19 through 21. The continuing blessing of God's kindness. You see his kindness continuing in blessing in two ways. There's kindness to Samuel and his family. Uh, Love abounds, faith abounds, and the family grows. Kids abound. Hannah Here we learn in verses 19 through 21, well, she's thinking about him all year long. She makes a little robe for him every year. Perhaps you can imagine her sitting by her fire, knitting or crocheting or whatever it is she's doing. It's this broad square garment that would have been worn for warmth as well as used as a blanket when he was sleeping. Uh, There's, I think, no need to assume here definitively that she only saw her son once a year. And I simply say that because uh, Rama, where she's from in Shiloh, is roughly 10 miles. Now, that's, that's a long trip when you're on foot, granted. But I don't think the text is saying this is the only time she ever saw him. But, but every time they went up for the yearly feast, she had thought about how big is my boy going to be. And she made sure he didn't have a cloak that was too big and cumbersome, but one that was neither too short. And uh, didn't give him the warmth. She's thinking about him. She loves him. She's at the yearly feast like Elkanah is. Uh, I think that comment is made in part to show that despite Eli's shortcomings. Remember he thought she was drunk when she was praying. And despite Eli's son's wickedness. Faith persisted among the godly. Those who believed didn't let the corruption of the ministers then keep them from trusting God or doing what God had called them to do. They celebrated the, the, the feasts as God had said to do. They trusted in God as God wanted them to do. Though, though the evils of leaders in the church are oftentimes used as the reason why people say, that's it, I'm out of here. If that's how God's people are, I want nothing to do with God. These people, Elkanah and Hannah, remain firm in the faith. They continue to trust in the Lord. They continue to go to Shiloh to offer God's appointed sacrifices. And I want to say to us, though though evil in leadership is a wicked thing. uh, And it ought to be confronted. Uh... It's actually a confirmation, not a contradiction of God's word. It's actually a confirmation of the truth of God's word. It was Jesus himself who told us that there would be false apostles, there would be false prophets, that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. And so Elkanah and Hannah, their trust in God continued. That was God's kindness to them, part of his blessing. And their family grew. Verse 20, Eli, it says, blessed them in his capacity as high priest. He said, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And then they went home and the Lord visited Hannah and three more sons and two daughters were given by God to them. So Eli's children may have abandoned the true God, but the true God did not abandon his own children. And he blessed Hannah. And he gave her more children. She experienced, I think, what Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 18 when he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children. Think of Samuel. There is no one who has left even children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. She she knew the joy of that of God's provision 
You can't outgive God. His kindness continues to bless his people. It won't take the same form in everyone's life, but God is still at work and still blessing his people. And notice the other way he's blessing, not just that family, but he's actually continuing to bless the ministry. Notice verse 20 goes out of its way to tell us that Eli, the priest, the high priest, would would bless Elkanah and Hannah each time they left. Now, I don't think that needs to be there. Well, what do I mean? Well, that's part of God's word. Of course it needs to be there. Well, what I mean is this. You could have skipped that and just discovered that they kept worshiping God and then they went home and they had a bunch of more children and it could have said God gave them children. What a great blessing from God. Why does it point out here that, El- that Eli, the, pri- the high priest, blessed them and and basically prayed that this would be the case why in chapter one does it tell us that eli blessed her and prayed that the lord would give her the child that she asked of the lord the the point is that god had not abandoned his own temple he had not abandoned his own priesthood and he was the one who made the words of the priests effective were the means of grace, we might put it, a farce in Shiloh? A total farce. Because those who administered them were either reprobates, Eli's kids, or perhaps deeply flawed failures like Eli. And I think the answer to that is no. The means of grace were not completely ineffective because the God of grace was continuing to bless. The high priest blessed them and God blessed them. I'm not saying God blessed them because the high priest did, as if he was at the beck and and call of the priest, but that the priest did what the priest was to do, to bless the people of God. And God, in his sovereign grace, showed up. But he's the effectiveness behind the words. In other words... It didn't depend upon the perfection of Eli, just as the sacrifices of atonement and the sacrifices for forgiveness or the priestly prayers or other blessings continued to be God's method of ministering grace despite priestly corruption. Those sacrifices still pointed the people to God's holiness, their need for forgiveness, their need for atonement, the provision of of atonement. And they pointed forward to the promised one who would be the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice to provide the perfect atonement. Those things still did that work. And by God's grace, his sovereign grace, It was effective in the lives of the people of God. And so I I pause here to say this. Do the failures of pastors and elders today negate God's ministry entirely? Does the, let's put it this way, does the preaching of God's word by fallen people, sinful men, does the administration of baptism, the administration of the Lord's Supper, uh, does it only work if the minister isn't sinful? I'm not saying pastors are priests, though these kind of activities have a priestly cast. But is God still at work amidst sinful servants? Does the minister's intentions have to be proper and perfect? This is not an insignificant question. Some of you were perhaps baptized by a minister who has now 
gone out of the ministry and perhaps has completely abandoned the faith. Does that invalidate your baptism? No. What if he was in the midst of that moral failure at the very time he had he administered baptism to you? Do you need to be baptized again? No. The true reality in the sacraments is God's work activity, just as the power of the priest word is God's power at work in his own word by his Holy Spirit. And he used a very troubled priest, Eli, who seems at times to be genuine and sincerely devout, but terribly flawed. And at other times you think he's, maybe he's, his kids are just a chip off the old block. But God was still blessing his people because the means that God has appointed to bless, he still uses. May we never be satisfied with ungodly ministers and preachers and teachers. May we never be satisfied with wickedness and evil in the heart, life, words and affections of those who preach the gospel to us. May I never be satisfied with my lack of Christ-likeness. Don't misunderstand me. But our hope for blessing is not in me. It's in the Word of God and the visible Word. Uh, this was such a kindness, I think, then, to believers in Israel. Though many of their leaders had abandoned God, God had not abandoned His people and His promises and His ministry. Um, it's, a, it's, it's not an exact parallel, but, but Corey Ten Boom, some of you know, the Christian whose family hid Jews during the Holocaust, who was later discovered and imprisoned for it. She said this, often I have heard people say, how good God is. We pray that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. weather. Yes, she says, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister, Betsy, to starve to death in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark, and there was darkness in my heart. And I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy, he has not forgotten us. Remember his word? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. There may be darkness in Shiloh, but God's kindness continues because of his promise. Well, that's fine, you say. That's fine. In the face of personal ignorance, liturgical arm-twisting, moral scandal, and church leadership, God is quietly raising up new leaders. Great. Can't wait for them to finally get here. And God is still ministering grace to the needy and gifts to his people. Great. We like that. But what about those wicked priests? What about them? Well, that's your last point, verses 22 to 26. And I want you to see the sovereign decisiveness of God's judgment. The priests are warned and their hearts are hardened. And they will be judged. 
Hophni and Phinehas were abundantly warned in multiple ways. I can think of four or five ways they were warned. Of course, by Eli, verses 23 and 24, he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. But then they wouldn't listen to him. What misery we can bring upon ourselves when we do not listen to the correction and even rebuke of our parents. But that was not their only warning. They lived among the things of God. Their stock in trade was God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the need for atonement, the provision for sacrifices, for atonement, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of reconciliation, the promise of peace with God and with one another. Their very vocation was a continuing warning that they needed the very thing they offered to others. And what a danger it is in ministry to give to others what we will not take for ourselves. How easy, though, it is to do. To wake up every morning with a cold heart. To go about the business of God as if it's business. Help others, you know, with their spiritual transactions at the temple. Serve up God's pardon for others, but never receive it by faith oneself. And I simply urge you to pray for me and for all who teach you the sweet news about Jesus. Pray for me that I would not be like a vending machine, coldly passing out treats with no appetite myself for these things. They had the warning because of their vocation. They had a warning because of God's explicit law. Leviticus 7 was clear that anyone who ate the peace offering while unclean was to be cut off from Israel. And these men had made themselves unclean by the things they were doing. And they basically dared God to cut them off. And they didn't think he would do it. But they had been warned. And then there's this very specific language In verse 25 of warning, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? What's that saying? People come to them with their sins. God provided atonement through their ministry. They were in the business of reconciliation. People would come to them with their relational problems. And they would help them to bring about reconciliation between people. So you could celebrate a peace offering with your whole family before the Lord. And here are Hophni and Phinehas needing the very thing they treat so contemptuously. They have then nowhere to turn for reconciliation with God because they scorned the very means of that reconciliation. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. What does that mean? It's not a warning for those who are in Christ that you can lose forgiveness. You can be kicked out of the family. It's for those who have heard the good news of the gospel and deliberately keep on saying, no, I do not want Christ to be my priest and my sacrifice. I don't want what he's offering. They turn their back. Where else do you go for sacrifice? There is no other. And this is what they were doing. All that was left to them was judgment. And so Eli warns them. But they would not listen. Verse 25. And why would they not listen? 
Did you notice that language? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That passage does not say they would not listen and repent. Therefore, God decided to put them to death. It says they would not listen and repent, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The time for repentance for them had passed. They determined to love their lusts and not to fight against them. They hardened themselves and God hardened them. They stood firm in their rebellion and God confirmed them in their state of sin and misery. This is what theologians call God's judicial hardening of sinners. God doesn't do this to good people with pure hearts. But one of the ways that our sin affects us is... We get harder and harder in our sin the more we give ourselves to it. And God, in his judgment, actually lets us have our own way. He gives us over to the lusts of our hearts. This is the danger of refusing God. It's the Romans 1 uh, danger. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We reject the creator. We don't give thanks to him. We scorn his calls to repent. We reject the savior offered to us. And what happens? Romans 1, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This This is the danger of giving yourself over to sin, is God in his judgment says, you may have what you've asked for. You don't want me, you will not have me. And so we must be very careful. What we do not want from God is justice. What we want from God is mercy. Mercy for sinners. What we need is grace. And there is grace available. There is grace available in Jesus. For all who are sinners. Who will turn and ask for forgiveness. Harry Ironside tells the story of in the days of the... The pioneers who crossed the prairies as they went across some of the central states. There was one group that, uh, in seeking to be homesteaders, one group that had crossed a river and gone on, and then suddenly in the distance, they'd gone about a day's journey or so, they saw uh, smoke, which meant fire. And it was a massive prairie fire, and it was coming with the wind in their direction, and there was no time to get back to the river. And so what did they do? Well, some of the folks knew what to do. They lit fires right around them. And then they pushed those fires further and further out from them until they had burned a big circle around them. And they were in the midst of that circle as those raging fires came at them. And a little child, of course, with great anxiety and fear, was alarmed and then was comforted by the words of one who knew. The flames cannot reach here because we are standing where the flames have already burned. And so it is with those who are in Christ. In Christ, we are where judgment has already fallen, and that judgment then is turned away from us because it landed on Christ himself. And that hope arises here in 1 Samuel. Because though Eli's sons are wicked, again, there's Samuel 
Verse 26, the boy continues to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Do you hear that language? God isn't giving up on redemption. The young boy is growing. He's going to lead Israel as, as a judge. He's a priest who's going to be called as a prophet to function as judge, almost but not quite like a prophet, priest, and king. He was not quite that, but Jesus was and is the true prophet, priest, and king. And he came like Samuel as a boy and was raised as a godly child. And at the age of 12, with his family, went into the temple, not unlike Samuel. And he went into that temple, and what did he do? He taught the teachers. And they marveled at him. And Luke tells us in Luke 2, verse 52, listen to this language. And Jesus, it says, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's the language of Samuel. Why? Why did Jesus? To provide salvation in a dark time. To rescue people with dark hearts. To deliver the church from its wicked leaders. To put us safely in the hands of a good prophet, priest, and king. And so he says to each of us, come to me and I will give you rest. May we do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your beloved son. Thank you that he died the just for the unjust to bring us to you. Purify each of us, we pray. Present us faultless before your throne in great glory and grant us that hope of glory that we would more and more seek to walk in your ways and so purify ourselves in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.